This episode is brought to you by Merrick Pet Care. And if you've heard me talk about Grammy, you know that she means the world to me. I wanted a dog for probably 10 years and I was living in an apartment, couldn't have dogs. When I finally moved somewhere else, I adopted her within weeks and it was love at first scritch. She's about two feet away from me as I record this. She hangs out in the studio and all I want to do is smooch her and look at her and stare at her. I also like feeding her because I see how happy it makes her. And there's nothing like watching her lick her chops after having yummy stuff like Grammy's pot pie or real Texas beef and sweet potato, which are two recipes she's been enjoying for America. As her parent, I like that they use deboned meat and fish or poultry as the number one ingredient. I also like that they have these real ingredients and you can see them on the bag so you know what's in each one. And watching her do a little dance, especially with a Grammy's pot pie recipe, brings too much joy to my heart. Is there such a thing as too much joy? I'm not sure. But check out Merrick online or in your local pet store and look for their new packaging with real ingredients shown on the bag and inside it. Hey, Fidelity. What's it cost to invest with the Fidelity app? Start with as little as $1 with no account fees or trade commissions on U.S. stocks and ETFs. Hmm, that's music to my ears. I can only talk. Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Zero account fees apply to retail brokerage accounts only. Zero dollar commission applies to online U.S. equity trades and ETFs and retail Fidelity accounts. Sell order assessment fee not included. Some account types and securities excluded. Details at fidelity.com slash commissions. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. Just a quick note up top. So this Scorpiology interview originally aired about a year and a half ago, but thanks to a very kind and generous write-up about ologies in this week's New Yorker magazine, what? Uh, I wanted to give it an encore because the article's author, Rachel Syme, said that this was the episode that got her hooked. So if you're here because of the New Yorker, hi, hello. If you have already heard this episode, I promise it's worth a re-listen because it really is chock-a-block full of weird facts. And Dr. Esposito made a return appearance and gives us some updates about her life as well as has a message for Ologies listeners. So, okay, here we go. Oh, hey, it's a lady in front of you in the checkout with 26 items. Who doesn't realize she's in the express lane and is fully oblivious to your glares? Allie Ward, back with another episode of Ologies. So congrats for not skipping this one. You did it. If it's in autoplay and you're like, no, don't play the Scorpion one. It's too late, bitch. It's playing. You're in this now. Don't press stop. Don't. This one is amazing. I promise that there are facts in this episode you will drop in conversation and it will make you unfucking forgettable. Okay, first, really quick, Thank you, patrons, for making this show possible via patreon.com slash ologies. For as little as a dollar a month, you can submit questions to ologists and buckle the hell up because I'm about to record like 10 episodes in the next few weeks, and there are so many questions you can submit. So hop on board. Thank you to everyone in ologies merch available at alleyward.com and for tagging ologies merch so I can repost it on Mondays. Also, thanks to everyone who makes sure that they are subscribed and leaves a rating and a review. You know, I read them. I pick a fresh one each week. This one from Museum Eve, who said, if you want to learn how to love hagfish and be comfortable with death and see the beauty in moss and spiders and everything else, listen to this podcast. It will change your life. Thanks, Museum Eve. Okay, Scorpiology. Hell to the yes. This is a real ology. It's a subset of arachnology, arachnids. And scorpion comes from the Greek. For, are you ready for this? For scorpion. Okay, that is not something that made me say, oh my God. All right, so this ologist I met under very, very weird circumstances two years ago in a dusty field in the middle of nowhere at a festival for Burning Man types while we were both speaking on a panel about science. We were a little wide-eyed, 
and just kind of sussing things out. I dug her immediately. I've wanted her on for so long. Scheduling was difficult, but she was in LA for a 500 Queer Scientist Conference and to accept the 2019 Walt Westman Award for her support that she provides LGBTQ people in STEM. This is where we're going to throw in some air horns. I think we need some air horns for that. Now, I went to her hotel just giddily, and I asked her one million questions. We covered myths about scorpions, what big pinchers mean, some movie magic. How lethal are these critters? Where is their butt? Do they make out with each other? Parables about scorpions, glow-in-the-dark magic, getting stung, and also why hiding under a rock is beneficial for some insects, but can be very difficult for people emotionally. So bust out your black light, keep your ears on alert for STEM advocate, science communicator, researcher, expedition leader, and curator at the California Academy of Sciences, Scorpiologist, Dr. Lauren Esposito. Okay, so you are, I looked this up, you're an arachnologist, Yes. but I saw that there is a subset that is scorpiology. There is scorpiology, so I'm, a, I'm technically speaking a scorpiologist, but oh I've been trying to broaden my horizons and be an arachnologist and okay. study more other kinds of arachnids aside from scorpions. So I'm a budding arachnologist, let's a say. A budding? <laughs> and, and an accomplished scorpiologist. <laughs> Your business card should say accomplished scorpiologist. <laughs> now, I met you a couple years ago. Yeah. In the deserts at a festival, a symbiosis festival. Yeah. Was I was like shell shocked, I think, when I met you. I was like, I don't know what's going on. There's so many people, and I'm pretty sure they're all high on drugs. I know. There were so few pants and shirts worn. I, I remember. In the middle, was it in the middle of our panel or was it, I gave it like another little talk, so I uh-huh. can't remember which one it was, but like a fully naked guy just walked into the tent and he was so high and he just walked up to the front of the stage and was just standing there like mesmerized, like fully naked. It was one of the, one of the stranger places I think we've communicated science. <laughs> yeah, but it's good, right? Like it's like, take, like you gotta, you gotta, Get it in there whenever you can. Yeah, it's, if, if you've got a captive audience, yeah, talk to them about excited. scorpions. I remember meeting you and you you told me you were a scorpion expert. And I was like, how many scorpion experts are there? And you're like, not many. And I have bragged about you so many times. Where I'm like, <laughs> I met a scorpion <laughs> expert. There's like 10 in the world. How many people study scorpions with the depth that you do? Uh, there's definitely not many of us. And I would say like people that have a like a PhD in scorpions, a dozen at most. Oh my God. Are yeah. you ever in the same room? Mm, rarely. Yeah. Scorpion biologists, I think, are like kind of like scorpions. Like they're like, mm, <laughs> not really particularly keen on meeting each other, <laughs> like slightly combative, <laughs> um, but incredibly intelligent and persistent. I mean, present company included, I guess. <laughs> what drew you to scorpions? Wow, that's a, such a complicated question. Like nothing really. It was kind of like serendipity. I I grew up in the in the desert southwest, so I saw scorpions certainly as a kid, but I wasn't particularly like intrigued or wanting to dedicate my life to the study of these animals. 
Um, and then I, I, but I was like super into nature and I loved like turning over all the papers in my mom's garden and looking for cockroaches and earwigs and stuff, <laughs> which she didn't love, but also especially didn't love when I brought them inside alive. <laughs> um, and my mom's a biologist and eventually she taught me how to make a killing jar so that instead of bringing her live cockroaches, I would bring her euthanized cockroaches. Oh, what is a killing jar? Is it just like a cotton ball with ethanol? Yeah. Cotton, no, it's a cotton ball with fingernail polish remover and in <gasps> like an old peanut butter jar. Oh my God. It sounds, a killing jar sounds yeah. so much more. Uh, sounds like grotesque and morbid. Yeah. Or, like, yeah. <laughs> like here, take this killing jar, daughter, and go out <laughs> into the garden. Um, no, but it's, and it's euthanasia. It's like a humane way of quickly euthanizing insects. And so my mom taught me how to make one of these and, and I would like collect insects from the garden and make an insect collection in old egg cartons. Cool. And but then I grew up and like forgot that I liked that stuff because I was a teenager and was mostly into like I don't know doing what teenagers do, causing They're, trouble, causing, causing ruckus. Yeah, like re like rebel rousing and getting on people's lawns, turning up the music too loud. Yeah, toilet papering, you know those <laughs> kinds of things. And and then like halfway through college, I I took an entomology class and was like, oh my god, I love this. And then I applied for a summer internship at the American Museum of Natural History. Not knowing it was going to be an internship studying scorpions, which it was, and and I got it, and I showed up, and they like dumped me in the lap of a, a new curator at the American Museum, Lorenzo Prendini, who would later become my PhD advisor. Aww. So she and this new curator spent the summer figuring out a research system, and then for newbie Lauren the New York City subway system, probably. And then when the internship was over, she realized she loved science, but she didn't want to go to medical school like she thought. She'd rather be outdoors and studying nature. So she thought, graduate school. So she contacted her curator from the internship, and he said, yo, come back. Get your PhD working with me in these freaking scorps. It'll be sick. And she was like, tight. I think that was the convo. Like, move to New York and do a PhD? Like, absolutely, I'll do that. Um <gasps> Are there even scorpions in New York? No, there's no scorpions in New York. <laughs> I didn't think so. There's none at all. I mean, there's a museum <laughs> full of, of, of probably the world's greatest collection of scorpions, but there's certainly no living scorpions. But the good news is you can hop on a plane from New York and get just about anywhere in the world relatively quickly, and I did. It was scorpions or die. <laughs> Which I feel like scorpions does, they do have a high stakes reputation, pretty much like that. I think scorpions, like, kind of, like, even more so than spiders, everybody's like, oh, they're they're definitely going to kill you. Oh, like, sure. any encounter will be lethal for you, for sure. Yeah, if you see a scorpion from six feet away, you will drop dead later that day, even if you have no contact. It's going to jump across the room and go <laughs> flying, like, it, like wings are going to come out of its body, <laughs> and it will try to kill you no matter what. They are ruthless, secretive, and highly organized. They are not. We will address this later. No, at what point when you were studying them did you say, holy shit, these are cool? You know, it was really, it started when I was doing that undergraduate internship and I realized like, man, scorpions are amazing for so many reasons. Oh boy, how'd he get ready for this? Oh, hot damn. Okay, here we go. Here we go. One, they were the first terrestrial arthropod predators. So before anything else was on land, scorpions came on land, these little beasts. They weren't little then, they were like... The ancestors of scorpions were like a meter long. <gasps> they were huge. Three feet? Yeah, three feet. Maybe what? even bigger. Maybe oh, five shit. in some cases. That's crazy. And they were these like underwater marine predators that were like ruling the oceans at the time. 
And and eventually, some people have hypothesized that because we found these um, ancient trackways alongside rivers of scorpions, mm-hmm. so they're little footprints embedded in rock. Well, it was mud that turned into rock over time. Um, and and they've hypothesized that they were actually became amphibious and were coming up onto land to eat spawning fish. Oh, like grizzlies, right? You know, grizzlies like come in the river and eat the spawning fish. They were doing the same thing, but they were like the size of grizzlies and they were scorpions. It comes to scorpions, the bigger, the better. Oh my God. I literally am having like vertigo. Like I can't just (laughs) imagining a scorpion the size of like a kiddie pool. Just, just hurt like, like a crazy, like an alligator. Basically like an alligator. They were these things, they were called Eurypterids, the ancestors of scorpions. And eventually the gills that they had to breathe underwater were internalized and that allowed them to live on land. And so the scorpions of today basically look identical to the scorpions of 450 million years ago. So they've been on Earth forever, right? So we can ask all kinds of crazy questions about what happened on Earth in the last 450 million years by trying to understand the, the evolutionary history of scorpions. And so how do you think they got littler and littler? Well, there's a like the main driving factor behind why insects and arachnids are not as big as they used to be, as big as the fossils we find, is the uh, oxygen percentage in in the air in the atmosphere. Oh, because scorpions and spiders and insects all basically passively respire, so they don't breathe. They don't have lungs where they're breathing in and out. Um, and they don't have uh, closed circulatory systems. They just kind of have blood that like pump- gets pumped around by a heart, just open up in their body. Mm-hmm. And and so the rate at which oxygen can get to the, all their tissues that they need for walking around and moving and eating and doing all the things mm-hmm. is limited by how much uh, concentration of oxygen there is in the air. And over time, the oxygen concentration has gone down. So Lauren explained that when life started coming on land and there were more and more air-breathing critters, the carbon dioxide output increased and the oxygen levels went down. So when you have less fuel, you downsize. So think of trading in a Hummer for a Fiat, but slowly as a result of evolution and all of your relatives dying off before you. Okay, so apart from the last 450 million years of history, where can we find scorpions? And so where do scorpions live? Clearly not in New York City. Oh my gosh, they live basically everywhere that that there's not major freezes for long parts of the year. Okay. So like like imagine a place. Scorpions in your underwear. There's probably scorpions there. They're not in Antarctica Mm -hmm. because there's really nothing. I mean, aside from like penguins. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> and things in the ocean. Uh-huh. Um, there's not much in Antarctica. Bacteria. And they're also not in the Arctic because it's cold. It's like snow on the ground all year round. But they are in places like the Alps. So you wouldn't expect them to be in the Alps. Or like the, the upper reaches of the Andes, like in Argentina, there's scorpions. The, my real area of speciality is the neotropics. So I'll go to the Caribbean, to so Central America, South America. But I've been to places like islands off the coast of, of uh, equatorial Africa, um, Southeast Asia. I don't know. I've been like all over the world looking for those little buggers. At the point when I decided to do a PhD, I think that that was part of the intrigue for me was that there was this potential to travel the world doing science and incorporating two things that I love, which is traveling and science. But you know, what's kind of funny is, is like recently I remembered this thing that happened to me when I was a kid and it was in the sixth grade. And I had a homeroom teacher who gave us this assignment. And the assignment was to write an essay about what you want to do when you grow up. Like, pretty straightforward, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like that happens all the time in school. Yeah. 
but I was so upset about it because I didn't know what I wanted to be. And like, I, re I remember even like crying at home oh. over this assignment because it was like so frustrating for me to, that I had to write what, like, no, at this age of, I don't know, how old are you in sixth yeah, like grade? 11 10 or 11? Yeah. What I should want, what I should do when I grew up. I knew lots of things I didn't want to do, but I didn't know what I did want to do. And eventually I settled on, I wasn't sure, but I knew I either wanted to be a rocket scientist or a hobo. <laughs> And I mean hobo in the sense of like, like train traveling, seeing yeah. the world hobo, right? Yeah, just freewheeling. Okay, quick aside to learn you on some hobo facts. Cool? Cool. Okay, so the word hobo is of unknown origin, but it may be from homeward bound, like hobo, or homeless boy, hobo, or from hoboy, meaning like a farmhand who would travel riding the rails looking for jobs. Can I just tell you a little bit more about hobos? Okay, great. So they had specialized lingo, such as, for example, to flip meant to board a moving train. And a mulligan is a type of community stew created by several hobos combining whatever food they had into one big pot. Also, a jungle was a hobo camp. And to catch the westbound meant to die. Is that not poetry? Catching the westbound. Also, they made a code of conduct for hobos at the National Hobo Convention in 1889. And the code of conduct is legit, starting with one, decide your own life. Don't let another person run or rule you. Two, when in town, always respect the local law and officials. Try to be a gentleman at all times. Sexist, but a good rule. Three, don't take advantage of someone who is in a vulnerable situation, locals or other hobos. Four, always try to find work, even if temporary, and always seek out jobs nobody wants. They also had codes of conduct to stay clean, to report anyone who harmed children. We should all be as decent as hobos. Also, they had these symbols that they would leave to guide other hobos. This led me to a webpage for the National Cryptologic Museum in Maryland, which, yes, I now have to do a cryptology episode. So bad. Okay, so in closing, hobos, clean, kindly, respectful folks who traveled for work and saw the land. And so for Lauren, it was either that or be a rocket scientist. And I feel like actually I'm like hit that, that like <laughs> intersection, you know, like I'm doing science. I'm like using like, like technological tools like genetics and genomics and at the same time traveling the world. So I am exactly in the middle of rocket scientists and hope. Oh my God. Like I, nailed it. And now tell me a little bit about the basic structure of a scorpion. Like what are we dealing with? Cause I feel like they got crab in the front. They got snake face in the back with the venom. Like they got the business end in the back. Yeah. What's it's like a mullet, right? So, so scorpions, like all arachnids have, have two primary body parts. They have a, a prosoma, which is the, like the head. Mm -hmm. And they have a, a, a pistosoma, which is like the body. So like picture a spider, there's two main chunks. Mm -hmm. But scorpions have this extra little business end, which is the tail. And their prosoma and epistosoma are sort of fused, so, so there's not like a real delineation between the head and the body. And then up in the front, they have uh, two pairs of appendages. They have chelicery, which are their mouth parts, and they have these chewing mouth parts that they use basically to like rip up meat. It is raw meat. Before they get it down their gullet. Mm -hmm. uh, and then they have claws that they use mostly for, for grabbing onto prey. Like in some scorpions, they just use the claws to to grab their prey. They don't ever actually need to sting them because they have these big chunky claws. Like picture those those big black uh, emperor scorpions that you see in the movies all the time. They have these huge claws up front and they almost never use their tail and their venom's not very toxic. Mm -hmm. 
But other scorpions have these really slender, thin claws, and they really just use those for manipulating prey items and mostly use the tail and really powerful, super toxic venom for disabling their prey and escaping predators. Stabby, stabby! Claws in the front, tail in the back, and at the very end of the tail is the stinger. And the stinger is a looks kind of like a bulb, mm-hmm. like a light bulb. And uh, at the end of that is a hypodermic needle. God. And inside of the bulb is a, a layer of secretory cells, so cells that secrete toxins. Mm-hmm. And it's surrounded by muscle that allows them to squeeze those toxins out of the cells and, and into the hypodermic needle that they use to inject into their prey. Okay, so their venom bulb is kind of like one of those little squirty things you would jam into your ear hole to flush out funky chunks, only it's a nerve toxin made by DNA that they probably had for something else, but evolved it to become venom. So what is in this exactly? But the really crazy thing is that their venom is not just one thing. It's actually a complex cocktail of all sorts of different components. And they have things like antimicrobials in there, uh, enzymes that break open tissue and help them digest. And then they also have these complex neuropeptides. And neuropeptides are basically things that when they interact with your nervous system, tell your nerves to either send a signal when there's not supposed to be sending a signal, or they inhibit the, the transmission of signals between cells. Neuropeptides, by the by, are chains of amino acids that form these protein-like molecules that your nervous system uses to communicate. And the neuropeptides bind to receptors and activate a bunch of events inside a neuron. The neuropeptides in venom can jack that system by cutting off the neurons from talking to each other or sending signals when they shouldn't be talking. So venom is like when someone grabs your phone and starts DMing people it shouldn't or withholding a text from your boss. Okay, what if you're like a cricket and you don't have a boss or a phone? What does that do if you're prey? Yeah, so if you're prey what it might do is disable you, keep you from moving, send you into a seizure, really just dis- incapacitate you very quickly so that you can be eaten and make baby scorpions mm-hmm. <laughs> with the energy that you get from your prey. But if you're a predator, what it does is it sends pain signals to your brain, telling your brain that you're on fire. Oh my God, we're having a fire sale. Oh my God. When you're really not. And that, that pause, that signal interruption caused by the scorpion venom allows the scorpion a moment to escape from the prey while the predator is reacting to this signal that it's, it's forcing its body to send to itself. What types of scorpions have venom that is powerful enough to, say, incapacitate, like a dog or a human? Like, How much do they get a bad rep? Yeah. Well, they get a pretty big, bad rep, I would say, overall. There's like tw- so far, we've discovered about 2,500 species of scorpions, give or take. Uh, And about 25 of those are something that are a concern for a healthy human. And there's, you know, maybe a dozen or two more that are a concern for people that have a compromised immune system or are elderly or or very young. So the majority of scorpions, that means like less than 10% of all scorpions are something that are really dangerous that we need to be worried about. But that being said, all scorpions do have a stinger Mm -hmm. and they can jab it into your body and they can inject things that are in their venom, but oftentimes those things are more mild than a bee sting or a wasp sting. Oh, okay. What happens if you do get stung by a scorpion? Well... Has that ever happened to you? It's happened one time. (gasps) For a long time, I got to say no. Okay. I'm a professional and I take precautions. (laughs) Um, Suit of armor. (laughs) But like a year ago now, 
Yeah, actually, almost exactly one year ago. I was at this event, and I was passing scorpions around that I had found in the forest to little children <laughs> for them to hold. As one does. And it, like, I was passing a scorpion from one child to another, and it got grumpy. Like, I think it had had too many grubby kid hands on it. And it stung me, and I was, like, almost confused when it was stinging me. I was like, what are you doing? Because I'd, ha I'd handled these kind of scorpions, like, many, many times. It's a scorpion called the, the Pacific Redwood Scorpion or Pacific Forest Scorpion. We have them all throughout the Bay Area and northward. And I was like, what is, what is it? What are you doing? What's happening here? This is not normal. And then it hurt, you know, my finger kind of throbbed for maybe 10 or 15 minutes. And it felt like if I had jammed a thumbtack in my finger, you know, like if you jam a thumbtack in your finger, your finger throbs. But then yeah. it went away and nothing, there was no long-term consequences. Let me step back and say that there's two major groups of scorpions. There's mm -hmm. a, a group called the Boothid scorpions. It's it's one of the oldest lineages of scorpions. And it also has the, the greatest number of species compared to all the other lineages. And those ones all make neurotoxins that affect mammals. So oh. they ha they make neurotoxins that can interact with our nervous system. Again, these are the boothids, and I looked everywhere to find out where the name boothid comes from, and I think it's from the Greek for ox or cow, because their stings were thought to be real cow killers. Again, boothids. And so all of those have a more painful sting, or a put in the ones that are potentially lethal to humans belong to that group, the boothids. Oh. And then all the other scorpions are non-boothids. Oh. All the other groups of scorpions. And all those guys typically don't make neurotoxins that affect mammal nervous systems. But considering the reputation of scorpions, they do carry some dramatic names, like the black-spitting, thick-tailed scorpion, or the man-killer, or death stalker. These kind of sound like 1970s carnival rides. So bitchin'. P.S. When I googled scorpions with cool names, I pulled up an article entitled, no joke, from a baby blog, 10 fierce baby names for your Scorpio. Given I am a Scorpio, I had to read it. And among the suggestions for your autumn infant, who will undoubtedly cause drama, are the names Crispin, Evening, Steel, and Nyx. Not unlike scorpion venom itself, this article caused some involuntary sweating and gagging. But scientific names are jumped up by the scientists that first recognized that species as being a new species. Have you gotten to name any? I have, yeah. What? Yeah, we discover new scorpions all the time. There's like maybe 50 or so added a year to oh my God. our knowledge. How do you decide how to name them? Well, p different people have different approaches, and a name is really considered an, like something in honor of. So if you use a person or a thing, you're naming it in honor of that person or that thing. And oftentimes people take the approach where they're like naming it something that describes its physical attributes. So the name has like Latin words for slender or pale or yellow or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, other people use names that like come from indigenous languages where they're found, which is what, one of the things that methods I like to use because mm -hmm. I feel like it's... It's honoring the place where the scorpion is from and, yeah. and integrating the indigenous knowledge. That's great. Uh, Ask me how many species I've discovered. How many? None. Oh, well, we could fix that if <laughs> okay. you want. Can I come to the desert and just turn over some rocks and be like, do we know this guy yet? My favorite place is the tropical jungle, so you could come to the tropical jungle and do that. Oh, my God. It's just sign up. Just large luggage. Put me in it. Oh, my God. Now... <laughs> When you're discovering scorpions, I understand that there are black lights involved. There are, yeah. 
So tell me everything about why they fluoresce under black lights. Every time I see it, I feel like I'm looking at like a Bob Marley poster and I'm on drugs in college. Like what's it, happening? It might be. Oh, that is so trippy. So so scorpion, all scorpions fluoresce. It's a, a trait universal to scorpions. The, what fluorescence means basically is that, it, the, that there's a, a, a pigment in the exoskeleton of scorpions that's embedded in there. It's called cormorin. So side note, cormorin is often found in plants. And according to this Wikipedia prose, it has, quote, a sweet odor resembling the scent of newly mown hay. It's also found in cassia cinnamon, in fake vanilla, and in perfumes. Oh, and it makes venomous arthropods glow like ravers. Also, P.S., I never did drugs in college. I was a straight edge goth with like five jobs and a bunch of science lab homework. But my roommates owned a six foot bong. So I observed a lot of black light staring. Anyway, cormorant. What it does is it takes in light waves just from light, ambient light, and it excites those white, those light waves and, and then projects them back at a higher wavelength. Um, so that's what causes the fluorescence. It's not like, sh- like a reflection or. It's actually like an excitation of light beams. And and so they all fluoresce this bright, like neon, toxic sludge green under a ultraviolet light. And we don't really know why they have this feature. There's, there's a few possibilities. One, it's just a byproduct of how their exoskeleton forms. Like the, the process in which they form their exoskeleton creates a fluorescence. Or... Alternatively, it has like a function that, that's helpful for them. And there's a few possibilities. One that's been proposed is that it's a whole body light detection system. Oh my God. So it allows them to detect when there's light, which I, I think could p- very well be, but also they have eyes. So typically they can see if there's light outside or not. So it could be another function as well. The other functions that have been thought up are that it's a way to tell other animals that they're dangerous, like bees are black and, and, and yellow, and that black and yellow is like a, a sign that they're dangerous. Scorpions are active at night, and at night, colors don't show up very well, and things that are active at night can't see very well in color. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so many things that are, that are doing things at night have, a, have evolved greater UV um, capabilities. And so flowers that bloom at night have a UV pattern that attracts pollinators. Mm-hmm. So scorpions that are active at night might want a UV pattern to say, hey, wait, this is, I'm dangerous and you should stay away from me, like a warning color. Or they're actually trying to mimic something else like a flower and attract things so that they can eat them. Oh, my God. So those are all the possibilities. Do you think that their ancient ancestors that were ginormous could fluoresce? Well, there is some, a geologist mentioned that there's some really well-preserved fossils that preserved cuticle and the cuticle fluoresces. Oh my god. So side note, this is due to their glowing hyaline layer in their exoskeleton. Also, did you know that horseshoe crabs also glow under UV light? And so do proteins in human saliva, sweat, urine, semen, just in case you like checking hotel rooms for secretions. How many um, black light flashlights do you have? You know what? I feel like I just like go through them like like candy. Like I can't even keep track of them ninety percent of the time. But I do have two that are really nice ones that I like. Spent a lot of money buying from a company that like crafts them, mm-hmm. and those ones are my babies. I know where they are at all times. If someone wanted to go out and look for critters at night, do you think getting a black light and just 
yeah. checking things out. Yeah, I mean, they, like in some places, I saw them at Home Depot. You can go on a scorpion hunt. And That's the so thing exciting. is, the trick is to go out at night because one, you can't really see, see anything with the black light during the day because it's not a very bright wavelength of light. Mm-hmm. So it gets washed out by daylight. And two, scorpions are nocturnal, so they're active at night, not not during the day. And in case you're looking for a black light bug hunt or a guess that splatter game in your hotel, you can get a UV flashlight for around 10 bucks. But then I was curious as to how much a really good one costs. And I searched on Amazon the highest to lowest price. There was one on there that's 400 watt ultraviolet LED emitter. It's six grand. And then they jumped down to a couple hundreds. Also, at this point, we talked a little bit about the zodiac sign for Scorpios. We're like, mm. And it's like, okay, if you were born a certain time of the year, there's a connect the dots with some stars. It really could have been anything. Sure. Does the constellation look a little bit like a scorpion? Maybe. It also looks kind of like a Bissell steam cleaner. So who knows? Instead of a Scorpio, I could have just been like a carpet cleaner. Now, what about scorpions in movies or pop culture? Is there any movie that really does a good job with scorpions or one that really gets your goat? Um, you know what? Like, I feel like they're always the the problem I have with movies and scorpions is that they're always very inaccurate. Okay. <laughs> like, why in every single movie does it have to be a, the the emperor scorpion? Emperor scorpions are from tropical Africa. <laughs> they most definitely do not live in deserts. There's definitely no black scorpions living in a like white sandy desert uh-huh. that doesn't exist. They want to blend in with their environment. They're not trying to stand out like black on white background. Mm-hmm. So why? Why? I just don't understand it. Like, can they consult with a biologist and figure out what the appropriate colored species is for the place that they're shooting? Are the emperor scorpions easier to handle? Yeah, I mean they're really common in the pet trade, and mm-hmm. actually for that reason, they're the only scorpion that's considered to be threatened or endangered. Ooh. Uh, because they've been har- like over-harvested for, for the pet trade because of all those movies, you know. So some researchers think that scorpion venom may have cancer-fighting properties or could be used to develop like anti-inflammatory drugs. And it's reported that a gallon of scorpion venom is worth, are you ready, $39 million. $39 million. And a year or two ago, there was this get-rich-quick scheme that started to spread in the Middle East, countries like Iran. It was just promising a fortune to anyone who could poach or raise and milk scorpions of their venom. But it's turned out to be a total bust. So labs are not interested in amateur venom milkers. So what are they going to do with all these scorpions now? I guess just release them, they're saying. Or perhaps sell them as food. Scorpions can be like eating tiny land lobsters. But before you fasten a postage stamp-sized tiny plastic bib, Dr. Esposito says that most scorpions don't even reach sexual maturity until the age of five or six. So she gets a little sad thinking about crunching and munching them. Like they can live to be 25. Yeah, I feel like lay off the scorpions. Yeah, like lay lay off of them. Yeah. And the other crazy thing about scorpions that I always that I'm that I was struck by when I first learned about them is that the the moms give birth to live babies. That was my next question. I've seen a picture of scorpions that are just have a backpack full of baby scorpions. Yeah. What is happening there? Uh, yeah. So they so they get so while their courtship starts by the what we call pas de deux, the, they actually dance. They do like a ballroom dance. They're actually quite uh, refined animals. So the males approach the females and grab onto their hand they face her and grab onto her hands and then they do this like dance like back and forth where he like leads her back and forth and then he does this thing called collateral massage which means he's like kind of 
touching her her mouth parts with his mouth parts is basically like scorpion kissing and sometimes in some species the male will sting the female in this particular place on their body um and we don't know what they're doing they're probably injecting some sort of pheromone or some kind of slight very mild sedative to keep from getting eaten because usually they're smaller oh my god (laughs) and if if he does the dance well his, she likes his moves. She likes his ballroom dancing. Mm-hmm. Then he'll deposit this this gelatinous stalk on the ground. It's like a thing made out of like a jelly sort of material. That's hot. And at the top of it, he puts a little sperm packet, and then he leads her over it, and she she'll pick it up with her genital opening. Oh my god! And then she stores the sperm in this specialized structure in her body, and decides when she wants to inseminate herself, and also with whose sperm does she have different pockets like this is jewels like this is whatever it's unclear how they like differentiate once they've been inseminated if they have like a way to separate the packets or if the packets sort of stay that part is unclear it's her business (laughs) but at the point when she does decide to inseminate herself she has this complex overuterus system it looks almost in in many species it looks almost kind of like a figure eight and there's little spaces within that overuterus where the embryos start to develop. And once they reach parturition age, she gives birth. Gestation period, you ask? Seven to nine months, similar to a human, or up to 14 months for emperor scorpions. Just think, they have eight ankles that could swell up walking around pregnant. What troopers? Some female scorpions are just pregnant most of the time. Just most of their life. Kind of like my Catholic grandma, who had 11 children. And uh, little baby scorpions come out of her birth canal. Oh my god, is that viviparous? Or what is it called? Yeah, when it's, it's viviparous. Oh, viviparous. It's That's viviparous, yeah. clearly a word I read more There's than I viviparous say. viviparous and oviviparous, which is where you internalize eggs, and when the eggs hatch, you give birth. But these are fully viviparous, so they're actually like connect, like same as as humans. Kind of, they're they're the embryos are connected to the mom via a membrane, so oh receiving God. nutrition directly from her. And then they come out, and they're they're kind of in like a amniotic sac, sort of, mm-hmm. and it's clear. And the, once they give birth, the babies break the sac and climb up onto her arms. And while she's giving birth, she does this thing called a birth basket where she arches her back up because the opening is uh, like on their stomach. Mm-hmm. She arches her back up and makes her her arms like into like a circle, like kind of touches her hands together and makes like a little circle. And so they'll crawl up her hands onto her back and then they'll stay up there for, uh, depends on the species, but they'll stay up there until they've molted for the first time. So they've shed their exoskeleton and, and gotten a little bigger. And, and in that first period, they're kind of almost look like a little larval still, like they don't look like a normal scorpion. But as soon as they have that first molt, they look just like a little tiny miniature scorpion. Did I just watch several macro videos of baby scorpions being squeezed out of a scorpion vagina while sipping my morning coffee? I sure did. It looked like if you were to squeeze unpeeled shrimp through a drinking straw, just one after the other, like coming through a water slide, just bloop, bloop. So then they just climb up on the back when they live there, like people on deck of a yacht until they molt. So they just hop off and they're like, toodaloo, 
Yeah, like they, they, they'll kind of start coming off her back and then getting back on for a little bit. At some point, she's like, hasn't eaten in months and months and she's like hungry and she'll just eat those little suckers if they don't oh leave her alone. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> but, in, but in some species, they do kind of live semi-cooperatively. Like they're still living together in the same area for a long period of time. So the moms actually like will live in a burrow with the babies. Oh. I don't know, like months years maybe and mm -hmm. they'll just live around each other and they tolerate each other really well and then she gives birth from a, of anywhere from two to i think the upper limit that anybody's ever recorded is like 140 like high 140s wow maybe let's say 150 call it even 150 babies that would be like a lot and they all pile up on her back what a party yeah and now scorpion party what about, have you ever seen one in the wild that's covered in tanabibis? Yeah, you, so like uh, it, to find scorpions, I go out during the day and flip over rocks and logs and things that they like to hide under. Uh, and oftentimes I'll flip over a rock or a log and there'll be a mom with babies under there in the right season, like spring. Mm -hmm. Is that always kind of a special treat to see one? Yeah, and you know, like I collect scorpions and euthanize them mm -hmm. in order to study them. Uh, and I, I, I always leave the moms. Yeah. I don't want to, I don't want to take those moms and all those little babies. There's no need for that. Is it hard to collect and, and euthanize them for research? Or do you feel like you're like, the more we learn about them, the more we can kind of conserve them as a species? Yeah. I mean, certainly that that's for me, the rationalization is that we, for most scorpions, we don't know like basic natural history information, like how long they live how many babies they have, how they mate, how what they eat, what eats them. We don't know any of that information, except for, for like half a dozen species. Okay, so we have the lowdown on only six out of around 2,500 species. So future Scorpiologists, the world is your oyster, which is actually a mollusk. So I guess the world is your arthropod. The more information we know, the better we can protect them. And, and the truth is they're actually really environmentally sensitive. So most scorpion species, as soon as an environment gets disturbed by humans, can't survive there anymore. Oh, wow. Here goes the neighborhood. And so they're, they're good indicators of the relative health of an ecosystem. But yeah, I think I, I'll say that I didn't get into the business of studying scorpions because I love killing them. Unfortunately, they're not that cooperative sitting under a microscope alive. Yeah. <laughs> and the only way to identify species and, and study things like venom or, or reproduction is to look at them under a microscope. I think that's all entomologists have yeah. to. It's not like... It's definitely a struggle. Yeah. You can't exactly look at them through binoculars and just observe them for yeah. 10 hours like wolves or something. You yeah. Know? And unfortunately, with most invertebrates, we're nowhere close to where we are with, with vertebrates in terms of, of knowing how many species are out there and what they're doing. Right. Maybe once we get there, we can switch to the binocular. Yeah. <laughs> the binocular model. We'd need like a like a really, some really strong binoculars. <laughs> Very strong. Now, what is some flimflam about scorpions that you would like to debunk? What are some myths that you're like, let's get the record straight, people? Well, okay, here's a few here's a few things you need to know about scorpions. Okay. One, they can't jump. Oh, okay. It's just a thing. They don't they don't jump. They can't walk. They can they can walk on some vertical surfaces if they're like grainy, like like a rock that has little micro areas to step on. But otherwise, like something that's slick, like windows, they could never walk on a window. Okay. So they're going to have a hard time getting to you. If you see it from like a, like three feet away, like you don't have to run away. It's not going <laughs> to be able to grab you. 
So with the exception of Arizona, some parts of southern Nevada, and some parts of western New Mexico, Lauren says, In the U.S., there are no scorpions that you have to be concerned about. Oh, okay. Like, worst case scenario, it feels like a wasp. Even those ones in Arizona, like, they've if you're a healthy adult, you don't have to worry. It's not going to kill you. It will just hurt for a little bit. Okay. <laughs> you might feel like a little more like an electric shock than a wasp sting. Okay. But if you're a child, you want to be safe and not be playing with scorpions in Arizona. Just rule of thumb. Uh, so that's a, that's a thing. Um, you have cool tattoos. Do you have any scorpion tattoos? I do not. You don't? I'm have scared to get a scorpion tattoo because, like, I don't know. Like, I don't want to go with a cartoon one because I feel like it would bug me and, like, a real... <laughs> biologically accurate one like what if something came out wrong i know you know like or what if like the drawing was wrong to start with and i didn't notice it and then like i would have i look at it for the rest of my life right also like i do sometimes hate them because like (laughs) research is really hard and i have those days where i'm like i hate you i don't want to look at you like i look at you all day and then i'd have to go home and look at it like taking a shower i'd look at that scorpion I don't want to see those things. <laughs> um, I have so many questions from listeners. Can I ask you? Yeah. It's kind of like a lightning round. Who no. boy. Okay, so before we get to your Patreon questions, a few words from the folks who sponsor the show. And one thing about having ads is I get to approve everyone I endorse. And also, it makes donations to a cause of the ologist choosing possible. So this week... It's so dope to donate to Islands and Seas. This is a nonprofit that Lauren founded with Eric Steiner. And Islands and Seas is building these small field stations that serve as research facilities for scientists in the area. They also serve as centers for science and environmental education for nearby schools. These stations are carbon minimal. They reuse gray water, they harness green energy also, and they offer outreach programs for schools, they have internships for teenagers interested in science, field guide training. Ah, so good. Islandsseas.org. That's islands, plural, seas.org. So thank you, Lauren and Eric, for starting that. What total badasses with huge hearts, great brains. So donation is going to Islands and Seas. Now, a few words about sponsors making that donation and the production of this very show possible. What do you get for the mom who burst you into the world? I know, a candle. Are you like, no, that's not quite enough. How about memories that she'll love looking at every day? Or frames? I love them. So they're a digital photo frame. They were named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and by me. And Aura frames are Wi-Fi connected. You can add unlimited photos and videos, and you can invite as many people as you want to the frame. There are absolutely no hidden fees. There's no subscriptions. You can also react with cute emojis if you'd like, and you can show you love a photo. You can send congratulations or more. It's so wonderful that A, it's not a candle. And also, it's not sharing your photos on social media to look at. It's just there. You can share it with the people who you love. I have mentioned this so many times, but my parents have an aura that I got them. My dad loved that. I have gotten aura frames for friends, for family members, for family members of friends. So I'm a really big fan of them. I love what they do. And right now, aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. So that's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use the code ologies at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. I love these things. Oh, Kiwiko. We love you. Kids love you. Parents love you. Uncle Allies love you. 
Here's the deal. So whether you're staying at home or you're heading out on some summer explorations, KiwiCo is inviting kids, also kids at heart, that's you, to enjoy their first ever summer adventure series. So kids from two years old to teens can receive six hands-on science and art project kits over six weeks. They have something for everyone. They have different topics for each age, whether your kid wants to explore space or learn about dinosaurs. And I've heard from my parental friends that summer can be a little challenging to keep the kiddos busy. Kiwi goes like, we did the legwork for you. And the summer adventure series is this personalized experience with super fun activities like a bottle rocket kit where kids can build an actual bottle rocket and you can either receive all of your summer adventure crates at once or weekly for six weeks. I think it's so amazing that they have different crates for different ages, everything from the great outdoors that has like giant bubbles or a window garden to a trebuchet kit for ages 9 to 14, an entrepreneur where you can do textured clay projects. If you have kids, if you know kids, keep them occupied and learning and having fun this summer with KiwiCo. And you can get 20% off your summer adventure series at Kiwi kiwico.com slash ologies summer. That's 20% off your summer adventure at kiwico.com slash ologies summer. Oh, have fun. I know I usually save my secrets for the end of the episode, but I'm going to tell you my secret favorite candy. It's Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. It's really Reese's anything, but Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the thing that I'm like, have I had a bad day? I get these. Have I had a good day? I get these. Chocolate, salty peanut butter, the textures, I love everything about them. Also that there's two. So I'm like, oh, I get this one for later, which is one second later. Anyway, Reese's Peanut Butter Cups, I love you. That's all. If you're me, you can shop Reese's Peanut Butter Cups now at a store near you. Found wherever candy is sold. And I am. Oh, it's heating up. It's time to say bye now to your jackets and your sweaters and your tights and get reacquainted with shorts and tees, breezy things. Can I point you to the direction of Quince? What I love about Quince, you can build a lineup of timeless pieces. They keep you looking effortlessly chic year after year without spending a fortune. They have premium European linen dresses, blouses, and shorts. They start at $30. They have washable silk tops. And I love that all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands because they partner directly with top factories. They cut out the cost of the middleman and then they pass the savings on to you. So whether you need a sundress you can wear to a picnic or you need some good t-shirts or tanks that feel nice on your skin and are well-made, head over to Quince. I love them so much I put them on my body. That's what clothes are for. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash ologies for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash ologies to get free shipping in 365 day returns. Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash ologies. Okay, back to your questions. Okay, so this is kind of like a lightning round. Okay, Sonia Karpilevich wants to know, should they be kept as pets? And if yes, do they make good pets? I say, I'm going to say yes, they should, should, there's no reason they shouldn't be kept as pets, but like all things that are kept in captivity, I think it's really important to have captive bred ones, uh, because then that keeps people out of the natural ecosystems from over harvesting, over collecting for the pet trade. Mm -hmm. So there are some, like quite a few species that are really common in the pet trade and are bred in captivity. So if you want a scorpion as a pet, don't go get it out of your backyard leave it there. It's doing something important in the ecosystem and rather buy one that's been captive bred by by a breeder. Okay. So it's the opposite of dogs. Opposite of dogs. You know, don't rescue one out of the wild. Yeah. Okay. They don't need rescuing. They're, they're just fine on their own. Got it. 
I was like, how much do scorpions cost? And I found myself on a website selling medium emperor scorpions for $49.99. And they have a live arrive guarantee, which I guess when you think of it, it's really an elite selection of people who, when mailed a box of scorpions, would be disappointed to find that they are not alive scorpions. And um, Alyssa Catahis wants to know, why is it in the scorpion's nature to sting the frog? In quotes. Have you heard that? Fa- is there a fable? Yeah, there's a fable, right? Where the scorpion is on the frog's back and they're swimming across the, the scorpion convinces the frog to give it a ride across the river and says like, oh, no, I'll never sting you because if I sting you, we're both going to die. And then stings it in the middle of the river. And the frog says, why? And it says, because I'm a scorpion and it's in my nature. Oh, uh, I mean, I, I don't know. I guess it's like the point of the fable is that people are who they are and don't change Mm -hmm. sort of that's the philosophical answer let's look at this practically though but a scorpion sitting on a frog's back would never sing the frog because they have all their eyes on the top of their head and they wouldn't even know what they were doing (laughs) their eyes are on the top of their head yeah like Mm -hmm. facing up towards the sky how many eyes do they have Uh, it depends but usually they all almost all have three sets of eyes two in the middle and and then a set of of three to six in each corner of the front of their head uh, and so they're arranged like in a triangle. Some people have hypothesized that they use the triangular array of eyes to look up into the night sky and navigate by the stars. Oh, my stars. Now, for those who enjoy a good crossword puzzle word or are choked for conversation on a long car ride with your in-laws, navigating by stars is called astrominotaxis. Astrominotaxis. There, you know that now. Nelson Chan has a question that I think you are going to enjoy answering. Okay, I'm ready. Are all scorpions poisonous? And I know that there's a poison venom discussion to be had. There is. So no scorpions are poisonous because poison is something that's secreted. And then when something else eats that thing, it makes them ill. All scorpions are venomous, which is something that's secreted and then injected into the destined host like another animal mm-hmm. so there's a delivery apparatus for the venom so all scorpions are venomous not all scorpions are venomous to humans because they don't necessarily have that mammal neurotoxin but they're all venomous to something if you ate scorpion venom would it be poisonous no it's a protein and your stomach acid would denature it ah, so if you ate a scorpion unless it stung you on the way down yeah you're good to go you're good to go And then it would still be venomous because it wouldn't be digested. So poison versus venom. But I would like not recommend eating a thumbtack. Okay. So like in that (laughs) sense, maybe not eat the stinger just because it's like sharp and I don't know what's going to do in your stomach. Like it seems like not a good, like not a good look for anyone. Yeah. And also let them live. Let them live. Can I live? Um, Jordan Jarrett wants to know what your opinion is on the scorpion and honey, I shrunk the kids. They say, I love animals, but scorpions are the one animal that just creeps me out. Did you ever see Honey, I Shrunk the Kids? Is there a scorpion in that? Yeah. And I, well, here's what I'll say about that scorpion. Scorpions are, are opportunistic predators. So they'll they'll basically eat anything that they can get their hands on. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't forage during the day. And I f- want to say like when that happens, it's daytime. Oh, get out! Wait! Get away! Oh. So that's inaccurate. It was also an inaccurate <laughs> species for where it was. But... <laughs> But for sure, scorpions will, will will eat anything they can get their hands on. And that includes, like, if they could get find, like, a tiny gecko that they're bigger than, they'll eat it. If another scorpion comes along, they'll eat it. If it's a cricket, they'll eat it. If it's a 
moth they'll eat it Ooh. but they have really low metabolism so so that is another thing that makes them good pets they have like one of the lowest metabolisms so if you forget to feed them for like say a year they'll be okay if you forget a week they're gonna survive oh my god i didn't know that they're like camels kind of jay owens has a question if you remove their tails is it true they die from constipation and what is their mechanism if that's true so maybe i will say that the, there is some truth to that in that their uh, anus mm-hmm. is actually at the end of their tail right before their stinger. Really? So their, like, rectum goes all the way through their entire tail. And then, like, they're, they have just, like, a single kind of cloaca thing that has that excretes everything. And they don't have, like, separate pee and poo mm-hmm. situation. Um, and that so it all comes out from right before the stinger. Oh. So maybe they could die of constipation because it would be, like, ruptured and broken yeah that would be i like, think they'd probably just die of blood loss to be honest uh that was actually emily hawking's question about the waste management system where is the butt do they pee now we know <laughs> they do they excrete like uric uric acid same as other things and other waste products comes out of their butt there's this one researcher camillo matoni in argentina who has observed that some scorpions will voluntarily break off their tails to escape and yes In that case, in the absence of an anus, poo will just build up like emails you don't want to check. But sometimes they can break off another tail segment to get rid of the poo and then continue to live just long enough to mate again. Like, hey, yeah, hi, hi. I don't have a stinger. I I do have this stumpy column of impacted poo happening. I got scared once and broke off part of my body. But I would love a chance to just get to know you better. Maybe have several dozen babies. Wade Lee. Hi, Wade. Wade. Hi, Wade. Hey, Wade. Um, wants to know, is it true smaller scorpions are more venomous in general? Smiley face emoji. They, it depends on where you are, so it's not a simple yes or no answer. Um, in some places, smaller scorpions are belong to that one group, Boothity, so they are more venomous. Mm-hmm. But I would say in general, a better frame of reference is if they have thin hands and either a really long or a really fat tail, they're probably more venomous. And if they have big fat hands and their hands are much broader than the width of their tail, then they're less venomous. Ooh. So it's not like the overall body size, but the proportion of hands to tail situation. So counterintuitively, big pinchers, less scary. And you know what they say about men with small hands? You can't trust them. Dory, gorilla seals? There's a lot of consonants in that, and I don't know if I said it right. Dory Grillaseals, I think. I trust you. Uh, Not scorpion-related, but could you tell us about the 500 Queer Scientists Initiative? Why did you start it? Why do you think it's important? Future plans. And Carolyn Swift has the same question and said, as a queer scientist, I'd also love the answer to this. Huge thank you to both Dr. E and you, and Dory for asking. Well, I I am queer and I'm an arachnologist Uh and I think for most of my professional career and student life I kept those two aspects of my identity really separate Uh, and when I started my position I realized that I was the only queer faculty member at my institution really yeah and And I'm in San Francisco I was gonna say you're in San Francisco right San Francisco (laughs) is like the gay mecca so I'm the only queer faculty member and to my knowledge I'm the only queer faculty member in the history of the institution what 
Because first of all, we're a small institution. So it's not like a university that has hundreds and hundreds of professors. We have 15 faculty. But still. So, but still, it's San Francisco, right? Yeah. And so I started thinking like, if I feel this way, I feel like those aspects of my personality are separate. I'm in a really queer friendly place. I'm the only queer faculty member. I feel kind of isolated in that sense. There must be people out there in parts of the world where being... LGBT is not a protected uh, class for jobs, like you would be fired if people found out at work that you were gay, or if you're just in a place where like culturally it feels unwelcome to be out and open. Um, surely if I feel this way in San Francisco, there must be people in other places. And so I decided that I would start a visibility campaign uh, and it's called 500 Queer Scientists, and we're, we have a website. We also have social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram, and we take user-contributed stories of scientists and science students at all levels, from undergraduate all the way through deans of universities have contributed their story, and it's really just people sharing their stories of what they do in STEM and, and uh, their identity as a LGBTQAI person. Mm-hmm and how those things fit together. And and it's been, I think, great for the community to f- to be able to identify each other because often it's like one of those attributes that's, that's hidden, it's quiet, but it's a really strong part of your personal identity. And, and so it's hard to identify others that you can just uh, commiserate with or have as role models or as colleagues that you feel comfortable sharing that part of your identity with. And and so I think it's been a great way for the community to find each other and connect with one another. How long ago did you start it? We launched last June. Um, and we, I had collected 50 bios of people by email, like emailing all my friends and asking them to email all their friends. And two weeks later, we had 500. Oh, my God. And now we're eight months in. Eight? Yeah, eight months in. And we have 850 Wow. And we've had like over a million interactions on social media in those eight months. And you started it? Yeah, I started, oh it. I started it with the help of others. Yeah. But uh, but certainly it was my little brainchild and, and I'm really happy with what it's become. So you can find 500 Queer Scientists at 500 Queer Scientists on Instagram or go to 500QueerScientists.com and you can read first person stories such as Charlotte who says... I am a lesbian and a chemistry student. I made the decision to return to education after spending a long time selling phones for a living. For me, studying chemistry is the most wonderful thing I have ever had the opportunity to do. It started when my wife and I returned from our honeymoon in New Zealand. All we could think about is how do we go back there? We considered the usual ideas of learning a trade or something similar. Then one day I woke up and it hit me. I nudged Bex and said, I want to go back to school. She asked why. I told her I wanted to study chemistry. She replied, what for? so I can teach it. She simply replied, well, then go do it, and rolled over and went back to sleep. So here I am, Amy Churish, student at the University of Manchester, chasing after an interest in radiochemistry and a dream to teach at the academic level. Or Alexi, who writes, I'm bi and a wildlife educator, animal trainer, and artist. I floated through college studying biology and social psychology, not knowing what I wanted to do. In an interview where I uttered the phrase, elephant diaper, the managers of the local zoo's education department saw something in me that I didn't know was there. As someone who was impacted by David Attenborough, I never expected I could be doing the same for kids of color and all kids in general on the ground. But here I am, educator, trainer, scientist, and mentor to several queer teens of color. 
So if there's something missing from your day, and that something is crying with pride for total strangers and or making some new friends, do check out 500 Queer Scientists. And if you are a queer scientist and you're looking for a place to find some community, maybe share your story, look no further, fam. So follow the folks on there. Fill your feed with really great scientists. Fill your heart with joy and admiration. How has it changed your life having started it? I think for me, uh, the the biggest change has just been realizing other people that were not necessarily in my field, although I have met a few people now in the field of arachnology that are mm-hmm. queer, um, but in the greater field of entomology, which is the study of insects, doesn't really include arachnology, but they allow us to participate. <laughs> It's close enough. Um, (laughs) So I've certainly met lots of entomologists. uh, But I think also I've just realized like how meaningful it is for people to realize that there's others out there. Um, Because I've heard over and over from so many people at this point that prior to this campaign, they'd never met any other scientist in their field that was LGBT. Wow. So I wasn't alone, certainly. And I think that's that's the reassuring part of it is like, you're not alone. Mm -hmm. There's others. They're out there. They're just maybe not as visible as we'd like them to be. Mm -hmm. Anything that you would suggest uh, for people to kind of keep an eye on or anything that people could do to up the inclusion, anything that people could do to be allies, like any advice for people who are like, oh, I'm not quite sure what I could do to help. Yeah. So I think some, some simple ways is just acknowledging people in the workplace or in or in your like student community and and asking like point blank if there's ever anything that they can do or if there's if you are witnessing something that's that's would make them feel uncomfortable or you perceive that they're uncomfortable to speak out so that they don't have to speak out mm-hmm. um i think that that's huge and and it, you know also that i would say for me that's been one of the really great things about having run this campaign by talking about it this much this aspect of my my identity this much around my colleagues who are straight and hetero you know heterosexual non transgender gender conforming whatever they they've become much bigger allies for me like huge advocates mm-hmm. and have expressed their desire for advocacy in a way that like Prior to this, they never would have done. Mm-hmm. And so I think for for all the people that are LGBT out there, like taking the step of putting yourself out there and like expressing your needs to your colleagues and ha- telling them point blank how they can help is scary. It's like terrifying. But when you do it, like they're really appreciative of that because they don't necessarily know how to help you and how to be an ally. Mm-hmm. So just asking, which is, I think it's always like hard to ask for help no matter the context. Right. Um, but if you if you can find the courage to do so, it makes a huge difference. Oh, you're changing so many lives. It's amazing. Oh, I don't know about that. It's not me. It's the community. <laughs> yeah, but those 850 stories, only one of them's mine. But I'm happy to be the spokesperson for the community whenever I have, whenever I can, because I am in a place of, of privilege where I can talk openly about my identity in my workplace and not have any fear of retaliation or retribution, and have the su- full support of my institution. So, mm-hmm. so I'm happy to to do that work for for the community when I can. Like, there's not that much information about there, out there about the experience for LGBT people in the workplace in STEM, um, but the few things that we do know is that about 40% of, of queer faculty member members in academia and in industry are not out. Oh, so wow. there's a lot of people that are out there that are, are not comfortable expressing that part of their identity because of fear of retribution, which is a valid fear because 
um, surveys have shown that of faculty members that are out, 70% of them have been made to, f- to feel uh, excluded or harassed at work by their colleagues. Oh, my God. So there's like a huge uh, motivation not to be out, mm-hmm. even though being out is great for the community. It's great for future students. It's great to be a role model. But there's so much... Uh, there's so much. Re- there's so many reasons not to do it because mm-hmm. if you're going to be uncomfortable at work, it's going to be terrible. Yeah, you don't want to do that, and so I think it's hard to feel that you're in a space that's comfortable enough to be, to be out and to be visible. So they can commiserate and hear other people's stories, and oh, that's amazing. Oh, I'm so glad that you did that. You're doing so many good things. <laughs> <laughs> and scorpions people- and queer people. <laughs> Who knew? That's a thing. I don't know of any queer scorpions, but. <laughs> Oh, there's got to be some out there. Maybe. There's lots of examples of weird things in nature. Yeah, they're just under a rock. There's so much more fluidity in nature. So much gender fluidity, right? And yet, like, as humans, we want to dichotomize it. It's so crazy. I know. The snails episode, we talk a lot about, uh, you know, just you you come BYOGs, bring bring your own Jennies. Okay, is now a good time to hear from Lauren again? I vote yes. So she very kindly phoned in with some updates since this last aired a year and a half ago. Hey, all you Ologies fans, this is Dr. Lauren Esposito checking in, reporting for duty. Uh, I got some updates for you all, just things happening in the world of scorpions. Um, Let's see, what's happening? Well, I guess first, uh, my graduate student, Aaron Goodman, published a paper last year uh, documenting the first ever arboreal scorpions. So these are scorpions that live entirely up in the canopy um, in in Mexico and parts of Central America, and they live in tropical rainforests. We think that probably the reason that that they have taken to the treetops is to evade being eaten by other scorpions. Um, because scorpions are cannibals, which is super gnarly. They'll eat each other. Um, and if you're like a tiny little skinny scorpion and you're trying to get away from like big beefy scorpions down on the ground, it makes a lot of sense to make your way up into the treetops and hang out there forever. But not just her lab is busy. How are the nonprofits? In the world of 500 queer scientists, things are moving along. We are no longer 500. Now we have over 1,300 contributors that are able to share their story of being LGBTQAI plus people working in or studying in, in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. And that is incredible and inspiring and makes me feel happy every day. We also just launched our newsletter this December. Uh, and our newsletter is sharing some of these stories more in depth, um, letting our contributors really like talk about themselves and all the amazing things that they're doing. We last month featured some content makers, so some folks making like really LGBTQ specific podcasts, uh, starting their own little or like very specific organizations that are focused on like, for example, uh, polar researchers that are that are queer which is amazing that there's enough polar researchers that are queer to make like your own group that's so awesome i will link this newsletter on my website and look out for a podcast all about queer chemists called appropriately my fave queer chemist and an interview with an nyu associate professor john freeman whose paper measuring and resolving lbgtq disparities in stem raises some critical issues of queer scientists leaving their professions because the environment isn't the most friendly place for them. So this is an area of research that Dr. Esposito says is very data deficient, which matters because 
We really want those perspectives because those perspectives are so important for for advancing our scientific knowledge. In my Islands and Seas world, that's the nonprofit that I started a few years ago uh, with my best bud, Eric Steiner. We, We are just about to finish our inaugural field station in Baja, California Sur. Uh, It's a totally off-the-grid field station to support researchers, but also to support the local community in their scientific learning endeavors. Um, So we're really trying to connect the local community with researchers that come down to study this place to to make more impact on conserving it. Our field station is 100% off-the-grid, all solar. We have satellite internet, which is amazing because we can actually go down there and, like, send emails, which was something unheard of just a couple years ago. Uh, All of our water comes from a local spring, and we are about ready to start hosting groups of scientists and students, and we're hoping people just mob us with requests to come and and study the Vizcaino Desert, which is one of the most amazing deserts in the world. So I guess that's it for me. I am like have been overwhelmed with the amount of love that came out of the airing of my first ologies episode. And so I just want to say thank you for loving scorpions, but also a huge thanks to Ali for thinking that scorpions are interesting enough to make an ology episode about them. I'm such a fan of Dr. Esposito. Thank you, Lauren, for letting me ask so many questions, including the last two. And now the last couple questions I always ask are, um, what's the worst thing about your job or the most annoying thing about scorpions? What's the shittiest aspect about being a scorpionologist? A scorpiologist? You know, I think the hardest thing about working in science in this moment in time, in this country especially, is like the funding. It's so tough. And I think in in the field that I work in, which is sort of evolutionary biology, the successful funding rate to the main place that we apply for funding is the National Science Foundation government grants. Mm -hmm. The success rate's about 4%. So as an early career scientist, like breaking into that, because, you know, like almost certainly that 4% is not evenly distributed across all genders and ethnicities and stages of career. It's certainly biased mm-hmm. because the people that are more senior are more established to tend to be more white, more male and are better at getting grants. Mm. So to be an early career researcher trying to break into a 4% funding rate is daunting yeah. and hard and it makes it really hard to find enough money to do the thing that you want to do and feel is really important contribution to society. Mm-hmm. Do you have to write all your own grants or does... I do. Yeah, yeah, I do. I submit probably three or so a year. Mm-hmm. And, you know, those each of those takes months and months to craft. Mm-hmm. So it's time away from research, which is what I really love and want to really be doing. Yeah. Oof. And now, best thing about scorpions, best thing about your job, what do you love? Uh, you know, I love my job because I get to wear so many hats and I'm at an institution that feels... I'm at an institution that was such a good match for me, which is why I wanted to work there. Um, the California Academy of Sciences is, is I think, a, an incredible museum because it's equally committed to science outreach, which is something I love doing, and like really high-quality science research. Mm-hmm. So for me, those two aspects of, of, my, of my work life, 
I always felt like I was going to have to give up one for the other. Mm -hmm. Like in a faculty job at a university, I was going to have to give up the outreach because that's like extra credit. It's not, it's extracurricular. It's not something that's considered in your annual review or your job performance. Um, or doing science outreach, I was going to have to give up science because there's very few science outreach jobs where you can still engage as much as you need to in, in the science research itself. Mm -hmm. But I found a really great fit and... I think for me, that's like the the great thing about going to work every day is they love all the things I'm doing, including running a little nonprofit that's oh. focused on conservation and doing a visibility campaign for queer scientists. And it's nice to be somewhere where I can bring all of me mm -hmm. to the job. It's a beautiful place. Oh my god! If you've ever if going to work every day is also not so bad. Oh man! If you're in San Francisco, go go go! It's just oh, yeah. I could spend days. There. I just like walk through the park to work in the morning. <laughs> I see coyotes and there's oh. like crows quacking and <laughs> red-tailed hawks fly soaring through the air. It's like pretty amazing oh. and special. Lately, we have a turkey that lives in our business entrance. <laughs> And she just like hangs out in the in the like little walkway, like oh my God. like fluffing up her feathers and like walks around. There's lots of different names for her, but everybody's got a different name. What do you call her? Uh, I call her Bernadette. Okay, Bernadette. <laughs> Somebody I didn't make the name up. Somebody else did, but that's my favorite one. I feel oh like it's like like Bernadette's like a real turkey kind of name. You it's know? definitely. But a she's turkey a pretty name. turkey too. <sighs> Oh, my God. I need to come back and visit. Thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, thank you. Oh, my God. This is great. Oh, I've been, I have been gently prodding you for too long. Like, hi, We've been again. like ships in the night. We can never, like, manage to meet up, huh? Oh, I'm so we did excited. It. We did it. So, ask smart people stupid questions, because how the hell else would we ever find out that scorpions are 450 million years old and were once the size of, like, a couch? What? What? To learn more about Dr. Esposito's endeavor, you can find her on Twitter at Arachnology Nerd. She's on Instagram at Carabales, and I will put links in the show notes. Her education nonprofit, again, is Islands and Seas. It's islandsseas.org. Uh, you can go to 500 Queer Sci on Twitter. On Instagram, they are 500 Queer Scientists, and it's 500queerscientists.com. More links will all be up at alleyward.com slash ologies slash scorpiology. You can follow ologies on Twitter or Instagram at ologies. I'm on both at Allie Ward with one L. And there's tons of links again for each episode up at alleyward.com slash ologies. And you can become a patron if you like. Patreon.com slash ologies. You can get merch at ologiesmerch.com or through my website. Thank you to Bonnie Dutch and also Shannon Feltis for helping manage that. Thank you to Aaron Talbert for adminning the really wonderful Ologies Facebook group. Thank you to interns Harry Kim and Caleb Patton of the You're Never Too Old podcast. To assistant editor Jarrett Sleeper of Mind Jam Media. He also hosts the podcast My Good Bad Brain. And thank you to Stephen Ray Morris of the Percast and C Jurassic Right for never being a frog stabber and editing this all together. Also, Nick Thorburn of the band Islands, who wrote and performed the theme music. And if you listen to the end of the episode, I always tell you a secret. This week, I want to tell you about Herbert. Herbert is my tiny tooth. I have this one tooth that I had a veneer on because it's just tiny. And so I was trying to get my teeth moved around. I've been doing Invisalign for like four or five months to get Herbert back into place. And they had to take the veneer off to like fix it. And I did not know how small he was. It's been a while since I've seen him. And so now I just have this 
one little tooth. I'm in between the veneers and I got it taken off and I asked some close friends like, look at this. And they were like, I didn't, I wouldn't have even noticed it. Allie, you're tripping. Like it's, I wouldn't have even seen it. And then I went and saw my friend Daylin. By the way, happy birthday, Daylin. It's her birthday today. And the one of the first things she said, what happened to your tooth? And I was like, is it noticeable? She's like, yes. And I said, other friends were like, they wouldn't have even seen it. She's like, they're lying to you. So I'm going to get it fixed. Okay, just a quick update on your stepbrother, Herbert. So for months on shoots, I had this tiny tooth and I used this plastic material I got in a like $30 kit. It's called Temp Tooth and it becomes malleable in hot water. And then every time, every time before a business meeting or a shoot, I would have to mold a temporary tooth around Herbert and then just affix this fake tooth with denture glue. And I did this for maybe five months until I finally went back to the dentist and I was like, can you just put the body back on? Anyway, I'm still doing Invisalign to get my teeth a little straighter because with COVID, I have not seen my orthodontist in nine months. So that's how Herbert's doing. I was supposed to be done a year and a half ago with Invisalign, but hey, chin up, masks on. Okay, stay safe out there. Do not lick anything. Bye-bye. Pachydermatology, homeology, cryptozoology, lithology, nanotechnology, meteorology, Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers.